want to thank you for being here today. Today's teaching, the title of it is Faith in Action. We're still in our series of the secrets of joy in Philippians. And today we'll be in Philippians chapter 2 and we'll be starting in verse 12. And Paul now, he's going to move to some very practical matters in our life. And it's about our faith in action. It's working out our salvation. It's the ongoing process in our life of sanctification. And that sanctification is being set apart for service and sacrifice for the gospel. So he's going to give us some good practical advice today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll start there. And it says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you and will act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, I believe that this ties back to what Pastor Joey has been teaching when he talked about the family business and our on-the-job training, because this is for the whole church. What it really is saying here now, it's time to get to work. It's time for us to work. And what it is, is that God is working in us, and we're going to work out of that. And we shouldn't miss the connection between the obedience that Jesus showed on the cross for all of us, and the obedience that Paul is expecting Christians as followers of Christ. To obey and to work in unity as followers of Christ so that there's no division, that there is unity within the body. And Paul reminds us about being careful to obey Christ. Sometimes we tend to work harder when people are watching, don't we? Have you ever experienced that? When somebody's watching, we're working really hard, but when they're not watching, eh, maybe not so hard, right? But it's wonderful for us to know that God is always watching over us. And he sees us through all these difficult times in our life. And it's just not about that so he can make note of what we're doing wrong, but it's so he can protect us and guide us through all of life's twists and turns. Knowing that God is watching over us, being aware that God's eye is on us should give us a confidence to do extraordinary things in his name and for his kingdom. In Psalms 32.8, it says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Our God sees us each and every day. He sees everything that we do. You know, one of the many names for God is translated in Hebrew is called Elroy. And Elroy means the God who sees me. And that's who we have. We have a God that sees us, that knows about us, and that cares about every aspect of our life. And Elroy, the God who numbers the hairs on our heads and counts every tear that we cry, each and every one of them, because it's a personal relationship that we have with God. He knows every thought and action of people everywhere. And one of the most important things that we need to learn about when it comes to our obedience to Christ is that we must obey immediately. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he obeyed the will of his Father. 
He went to the cross for each and every one of us. In Psalms 119.32, it says, I will quickly obey your commands. In John 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. We must be careful to, and to be obedient when we're on our own, working together in unity and obedience. Obedience is evidence of our faith. When we're obedient, it shows our faith in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying be alert. Don't get sidetracked because God is working in you. And he's saying give some real thought and attention to what you're doing. Sometimes we do things without thinking, don't we? We say things without thinking. So he's saying pay some real attention to what you're doing. The church at Philippi is doing a really good job. There was no direct rebukes to the church. The church had a good reputation of obeying. It was not like some of the other churches like maybe in Galatia that they had going on, the different things that were going on because God had not left them alone in their struggles. And God never leaves us alone in our struggles. He gives us the power to overcome those through the Holy Spirit. When we serve God and we serve others, there's an outflowing of God's work in us to other people. And this is the secret to a transformed and changed life, to submit to God's will and conform to be like Jesus Christ and let him work in us and through us. It's personal and it's intentional. The first work is the justification part. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and then it comes to sanctification, being set apart for service, spiritual growth and maturity. And sometimes as we grow, growing can be painful, can it? When we grow, it's painful in our lives. But sometimes as that pain comes, we suffer as well. We suffer when we grow. To be like Christ, we must train ourselves to think like Jesus, to change our desires, to be more like Christ. In Philippians 2.8, it says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Obedience and faith includes the willingness to suffer like Christ. Sometimes we're not willing to do that. But when we do that, we will have a purpose and there will be meaning in our lives as we, as we serve God and we serve others. And this is exciting and this is good news for us because we're personally involved in our sanctification process. When we seek to obey and honor God, we can personally take comfort in the fact of God's grace is the source of that. And these streams of never-ending flowing living water that we can draw from flowing through us to other people. It's God's internal work in us overflowing into a broke and dark sinful world. And we know that Paul didn't mean work as to earn your salvation. That's not what he's saying. Such a statement would contradict Paul's gospel. What Paul did mean is it's a call for us to put forth a real effort in our Christian lives. Start working at it. 
Start working at your Christian life, exercising your faith, growing in your faith. It says, continue to work out your salvation to see the evidence in your everyday lives, to apply God's words in our lives. God gave us salvation. He gave us Jesus Christ on the cross, and he died for us. And it didn't cost us anything because God's gift of grace was free to each and every one of us. But it cost him plenty, doesn't it? It cost him his son. But God is so gracious to each and every one of us. And what we do is we take that grace and we make it our own. The freedom of our faith by which on one side we turn to the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2.8 it says this, For it is grace you have been saved through faith and is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace is a gift which is freely given to us. We could never earn it. And what do we do? We take that free gift and we turn it into a concrete action of our faith as we work out our faith in our lives. And that is called faith in action. It's a living faith for God's glory. In James 2.17 it says, Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have work, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Our faith produces our works. It produces the work in our life and that's working out our salvation. Faith in God and knowing that he's with us every step of the way. The intent of God's grace would be that it would work out and it would be evident in all areas of our life. We know that the work has been completed by Jesus Christ on the cross for us. But it's about our part, a personal responsibility to work through that salvation in all areas of our lives. At home, in our workplaces, and in the marketplaces of life. So I have a question for you. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that application? Are you growing? Are you working on your spiritual growth? You know, earlier in the year, we introduced to you the seven disciplines that the church has. And I have a slide on the screen that shows those seven disciplines that we talked about. Gathering to worship, spending time with Jesus, connecting with your community, fight for freedom, join a serve team, live on mission, and invest your resources. And it's sanctification because it's personal and it's intentional. As Christ followers, we need to do every day some of these things, each and every one of us, to live our lives and let God work through us as we apply those principles in our lives. Because God is working in us and through us so that we can reach a broken and dark world. So that we can finish that work. And scripture also tells us there, it's very interesting, because Paul says, work out your salvation. He wants us to work on ourselves. And that's what these seven disciplines will help us do. When we spend time 
with God in his word, when we gather to worship together or we join a serve team, sometimes, though, we show a greater concern for the work of God and others, don't we? We like to look at what other people are doing. It's not enough about the work that's in us. So how are we doing with that? If we looked in the mirror right now, how would we be doing with that? How would that look, our walk, our disciplines, and our discipleship? In Luke 18, 11, it says this, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This Pharisee stood on the dry ground that he had gained And he had got through the storms of life, but he looked with pride, not with pity or empathy or compassion on those who were struggling in the storms and still in the deep waters. And sometimes we can do that, can't we? Sometimes we can look over here and go, my sin is not as bad as his, so I guess I'm doing pretty good. Or my sin is not as bad as theirs, so I'm okay. Sometimes we try to justify our sin by doing that. But to God, sin is sin. In Romans 8.23, it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we start comparing ourselves to other people, I want to challenge you this. When you compare yourself to somebody, only compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Take a look at yourself and compare yourself to Jesus, not to other people. That's what we compare ourselves to. And this tax collector said a very simple prayer. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. His prayer was heard by God, and he was forgiven. And we should care about the souls of other people. We should care about the lost because Jesus cared about them, and we should care about them as well. But it begins with our own souls first, where we're at. No one can work out our salvation for us. We have to do it on our own. And Paul was fully aware of this. And the urgency he adds with these two words, this fear and trembling. Paul's idea was that not that we should live our lives in constant fear and terror, but we should live with a fear of failing to work out our own salvation, with failing to grow to be more like Christ. We should be complete because God's work in us. And it also might be the righteousness in this all-filled reverence of God that every believer should have. It doesn't mean that we have to be trembling and guilty because we're a sinner. Instead, it should be a joyful trembling of an encounter with the glory of God. When we encounter God And when we accept Jesus Christ into our lives, we should be changed. There should be a transformation in our lives. And the application here is that we are to be fearfully alert and awake and take seriously our sanctification as we grow mature in our walk in faith. Paul makes it very clear that it's not about our work. He makes it clear that God's love and his forgiveness come first. God's grace precedes our response. And he makes it very clear that 
how we respond to God's love is with reverence and alertness in our lives. As Christ followers, we have a responsibility to diligently work with fear and trembling regarding our salvation and our walk with the Lord. God's work in us and our responsibility, because God is working in us, it doesn't lessen our responsibility to work as well. When we don't work, when we don't take our uh, responsibilities seriously and work out our salvation and use it as an excuse, we're like that wicked and lazy servant in Matthew 25. We must put our talents to use for the kingdom. God has given each one of us gifts, and he expects us to use them. And you're familiar with that story where they didn't, he didn't use those talents. What he did is he buried them. He didn't use them. In verse 26, it says this, His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. He didn't use what God gave him for his glory. And we must put our faith into action using what God's given us to advance his kingdom for his glory. God does not command us to sit back on our talents and not use them for the kingdom. Rather, we are commanded to use them as a motivation for more dedicated service to him and others. This motivation behind God's work in us, it said it because it is for his pleasure. We do it for his pleasure. And then verse 14, it says this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Anybody here do that? Am I the only one? I think we do. So So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You know, according to the commentaries, there's a dispute on whether or not they're arguing or complaining about the church in Philippi, or they're just arguing because um, of a present conflict. So they're maybe arguing with God about that. We're not sure. And what's interesting about the Bible, when the Bible doesn't say anything, the Bible's silent about it we should stay silent about it as well. So we're not really sure, but when it talks about grumbling and arguing, why is that so harmful? Why is that harmful in our lives? Well, in the church, if people only saw that people were always arguing and complaining and gossiping, they'd get the wrong impression of the church. The impression of the church that they should see is that the church is a hospital. It's a hospital for broken, hurt, and lost sinners, a place of restoration, healing, hope, and joy in Jesus Christ. That's what they should see. Our faith and trust in Jesus should unite us and let us let the world see Christ in us. You know, when our minds are submitted and we surrender to Christ, we don't murmur and we don't make excuses. I heard this saying once, and I think it's a good saying. It says this, When you get good at making excuses, that's all you'll be good for. Don't make excuses and don't grumble and don't argue because God hears us. Not only does God see us, but he hears everything. 
And it says this, Paul says, to be blameless and pure and innocent as children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, not a complaining spirit. We show ourselves to be true followers of God. You know, one of the things about when we get a passage as pastors to work on is normally once we read it, we find something that hits us that week that kind of makes us the passage come become real to us. And this week, um, I have to tell you, been going through a lot of hard stuff. A lot of things that a lot of things that are going on that are just real heavy. But I had an issue where I lost some stuff. I'm not going to go real deep into it. But I lost some stuff, and it really upset me. And I was complaining. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I was, I was complaining about it. And I want to apologize to you if you were one of the people I complained to. But I lost some stuff. And I'm going to give you guys a spoiler alert here because we've been doing a lot of uh, people have been going home to be with the Lord. And um, when you go home to be with the Lord, somebody's going to get your stuff. Okay? Just to let, just to let you know that. So stuff really doesn't mean that much. But I lost this stuff, and I was complaining about it, and I went home, and who did I complain to? I complained to my wife, right? That's what we do, right? So I was complaining to her. Then I turned from her, and I turned to God. And I started complaining to him. And I was telling him, Lord, I've had such a bad week. All these things are going on, and now I've lost my stuff. And he goes, it's just stuff. He goes, you didn't lose me. I've been with you the whole time. But you were so fixed on your stuff that you didn't see me through the circumstances. And our circumstances are what make us happy or they make us sad. And they can change the way we look at things. But the joy of the Lord knowing that he's with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, should change the way we look at things. And I call this a spiritual smackdown because I get these a lot. The Lord smacks me down a lot. And it was like, it was just stuff, Craig. You haven't lost me. And that's for all of us. God's always with us. Our circumstances could change. Everything could change, but he doesn't change. And he's with us during all of this. And what we do is we keep our eyes above the circumstances. We keep them focused on Christ. And we don't worry and argue or murmur about the circumstances. We pray to the God of those circumstances. And that's how we get through this. That's how we can become a bright, shining light into a dark world. You know, I thought about that as God was speaking to me and I was getting ready to go to Publix. And every time I go to Publix, I get tempted to complain like probably the rest of the world, right? Because it seems like every time I get into a line, I think it's going to go fast. Next thing I know, got a price check here. And I'm standing there waiting and watching the other people in the other lines go through. I'm like, I picked the wrong line. But I'm tempted to complain because I'd be right in with the rest of the world, right? Because they're all complaining. And what about the prices? We don't even want to go there, right? Prices are going up, so we don't want to even go there. But instead, what I should be saying is I should be thanking God that I have the resources and I have the food to eat. 
thanking God that I have a home to live in. And what about the weather? Just like I said, the last two days it's been beautiful, but we haven't had any hurricanes, right? Thank the Lord for that, right? There's always something that we can be thankful for, and we can have joy in our hearts because of that. And that's how we become a bright, shining light into a dark world. We don't have to preach a sermon. We don't have to give out a track. All we have to do is shine brightly into a dark world because God is good. He is good to each and every one of us. And he gives us the weapons to fight with. He gives us these weapons to overcome this arguing and this evil. And that's the light and the word of life, the word of God. And we have the power of faith and the power of the word of God. Now the balance is different. And remember this, in the end, we win. We win. So it doesn't matter what happens here. We have the Lord with us. And that's the joy that we always have because that will not change because he does not change. And we're called to be a light in a dark world. And the question I have for you is how brightly are you shining? How brightly are we shining today? Because lights are used to make things evident. They're used to guide us. They're like a lighthouse. They're a warning. They're used to make things safe. Being bright in a dark place, that's why it's so important that we shine brightly into a dark world. A transformed life is an effective witness to the power of God's word. So think about that. How brightly are we shining in the dark world? Or are we clouded by our arguing and our grumbling? Paul looked forward to the day of Christ because what he wanted to do is he wanted to know and see if his work was fruitful. And someday we'll all know that as well. But this was a true heart of a shepherd. And this true heart of a shepherd had very few burdens of his own for himself, but he had the burdens of many, many others. It was not content to just have his own burdens, but have the burdens of others that they would know and have a relationship with Christ. He wanted to see other people walk with the Lord, being on mission. That's one of the seven disciplines, being on mission, to tell people about the love of Christ, the repentness that they have, we can have, and the forgiveness that we can have in Jesus. Paul viewed himself as a disciple maker saying, hey, I can't wait to see all of you in heaven to see you get your rewards. That's who he was. He was cheering on his team. In verse 17, it says this, even, but even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You know, Paul's alluding to this practice among the Jews and the pagans and their sacrifices. They poured out some wine or some perfume on these sacrifices as they sacrificed them. But Paul was indicating that the possibility of his execution was coming closer. And Paul expected the Philippians to be glad and rejoice with him. He said, you know, I may end up dying here in Rome. I may lose my head here. But if I do, it's because of my service to God for the gospel. 
And that makes the sacrifice that he made even more precious. And Paul wasn't being morbid here, talking to them, saying, hey, have joy in my death. That's not what he's saying here. But what he was saying here is that my death would bring glory to God. And remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, to be in the presence of our Lord. And what he's saying is simply, rejoice with me. I'm happy. I'm content where I'm at. And this was a source of gladness and joy for Paul. And he wanted the Philippians and he wants us to have that same attitude as well. Again, this is the constant theme that we see in Philippians. It's that joy that we have. And joy is not based on our circumstances. Our joy is based on Jesus Christ and what he's done for each and every one of us. It's based on the fact that Jesus totally committed himself on the cross for each and every one of us. And when we're totally committed to serving Christ, sacrificing to build the faith of others, bringing a joyous reward and glory to God, I have on the screen, that's what joy is. Joy is putting Jesus first and then putting others above ourselves and then last is us, yourself. That's what pure joy is. When we put Jesus first in our lives. And Paul's mindset was to submit to God's will. And it didn't matter to him whether he lived or died because he knew that when he died, he knew where he would be in the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, as we move on to verse 19, it says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Paul's going to introduce two people. He's going to introduce Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he's looking forward to this, what he's talking about. He's pretty straightforward to this. But Paul wants us to know that serving is not a luxury enjoyed just by a chosen few. It's a necessity for Christian joy, and it's an opportunity for all believers. That's why we have serving teams. And there's a joy in being able to serve alongside of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But the thing when it comes to serving is this. It's God's way and it's God's timing. God will show you that. And he'll make the right time and the right way for you. In verse 20 it says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. When Paul sent Timothy, he sent his best man. He sent a man who showed a pastor's heart and that he had a greater concern for his sheep than he had for himself. You know, in Romans, Paul greeted 26 people by name, yet none of them was able to make this trip to Philippi. Not a one. Could it have been because they were all seeking their own interest? We don't know. But Paul recognized this rare heart that Timothy had. That Timothy did not look out for his own interests, but he looked out for the interests of Jesus Christ. How are we doing with that? Timothy had a submissive mind and heart. And this is not something that just suddenly appears in the life of a believer. 
Timothy had to develop it. He had to work on it. He had to cultivate it. He had to have a mind of Christ to be transformed to be like Jesus. And being transformed is a process. It's personal. It's an intentional. And it takes work to do that. And we're all being transformed. Each and every one of us, we will be transformed into the likeness of Christ by renewing our minds, willing to say no to the things that distract us from the things that we should be focusing on, the things that are important in our lives. And what's the most important thing in our lives is Jesus. We focus on God's glory and his grace in our lives. And Paul's words here, his confidence that he had on Timothy were so great because Timothy was personally involved as Paul was personally involved in his life. And what a marvelous example that Paul sets for each and every one of us. In Ephesians 4.29, it says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Our relationships are fragile at best. Build them up. It's better to build up others than to tear them down. We all need affirmation and praise, don't we? Not criticism. In verse 22, it says, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. They were working in the gospel. Paul is disciplining Timothy, discipling Timothy, and he's preparing him to carry on the ministry in his absence. But what's interesting here is that Paul did not put him on the team the same day that he was saved. He did not start serving the same day that he was saved because Paul was too wise for that. Paul left him to be part of the church fellowship in Derby and Lystra. And that's where Timothy grew spiritually and he learned to serve. He cultivated the heart of a shepherd. And Timothy cared for the flock. He cared for their needs, their physical needs, and their spiritual needs. And Paul would later write to Timothy about the importance of letting new converts grow before thrusting them into ministry. I read a story about a nightclub owner that joined the church and he was a talented performer, and he wanted to come right up on stage, and he wanted to immediately just join the worship team. And the pastor said, no, I think what you need to do is you need to get in the Word, you need to grow, and you need to start being in the church and learning and growing. He said he didn't want to do that. He said, I want to be out front. I want people to see me because he was putting himself first instead of Jesus and putting others in front of him. The long story short is this man within a year was broken. He was bankrupt. He lost his family because of what he was doing. His branches were stretched out farther than his roots went deep. And when this happens, we eventually topple. And that's what happened with him. But Paul didn't make this mistake with Timothy. He gave him time for his roots to grow deep, and then he enlisted Timothy to work in the ministry. 
And that's what these seven disciplines do for each and every one of us. As we gather to worship, as we spend time with Jesus and spend time in the Word, we grow deep. Our roots grow deep so we don't get so top-heavy that we fall. And I have a question for each one of us. Are we discipling anybody? The better question is, are we discipling ourselves? Are we into these seven disciplines? Are we working on those each and every one of us? Jesus trained his disciples, and he gave them personal instructions. He gave them balanced, on-the-job experience with what he was teaching them. But most of us, we become too preoccupied with our own needs to spend time working for Christ. So don't let your schedule or your concerns crowd out your roots growing deep and your service and love for others. Join a serve team or a home group. You know, Cindy and I just joined a home group, and uh, we've met one time with it, but I'll tell you what, it was probably the best decision we ever made. Being connected in our community, being with likewise believers, knowing who they are, it was just a relief. And it's just a place for me, and I'll be honest, I can be just Craig. I can just connect with other people and just enjoy the love of Christ, grow in the Word, and grow in connection with the fellowship of other people while we're all growing closer to our Lord. So I want to encourage you to join a home group or a group and get connected to the serve team. In verse 23, it says this, I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul is repeating his desire that he wants to come to Philippi. And Timothy is coming alongside him. They're serving together. It was a sacrifice of service. Surrendering and being submissive to God's will. And all of this comes, it doesn't come from just an hour's worth of teaching or even a year's of service. This grows out of our discipline to ourselves as we seek to serve the Lord and we seek to serve other people. In verse 25, Paul writes this, But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Now Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews and Timothy was, was part Jewish and part Gentile. But Epaphroditus, he was a full Gentile as far as we know. And his name means charming. And a charming Christian he was. He was a messenger and he became sick. He was a valued partner in the ministry with Paul. And Paul mentions three special things about him. And it makes that relationship special. He says he was a brother. that speaks of his relationship that was enjoyed in their fellowship in the gospel. He was a co-worker speaking of the joy and the job that was done as they labored for Christ in the gospel. And he was a soldier speaks of the faith in the battle that they fought together for Jesus Christ. In Nehemiah 4.17, it says this, Who were building the wall? Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. You cannot build with a sword or battle with a trowel. 
It takes both to get the Lord's work accomplished. It takes a balance. And we need to have a balance in our lives. Epaphroditus was a well-balanced Christian. Balance is very important in our Christian walk. As we work out our salvation, balance needs to be there. And Epaphroditus, he was a member of the church, and he was got sick. But he was sent to take care of the needs of Paul. And that's what he did. And Paul couldn't say enough about him. And verse 27 says, Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am more than eager to send him, so that you may give him again. You may be glad, and, my, and I may have less anxiety. He became sick, but God healed him. God had mercy on him, and when he had mercy on him, he had mercy on Paul as well, because it saved me sorrow upon sorrow, his fellow brother and soldier in the work for Christ. And verse 29 says, So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not. Give me. Epaphroditus was Paul's personal attendant. He carried this love offering, but he protected it with his life. In today's church, we have too many spectators, or we have too many fans, and not enough players, not enough people getting in the game. He was not just simply content with contributing to the offering, but he gave himself to carry the offering there himself. So the question is, are we spectators or fans or are we participants? Are we actually working out our salvation within the church? Or are we just on the sidelines looking in and watching? Getting in the game. You know, sometimes I watch these. You guys ever watch the commercials on TV and they show like these little kids that are malnourished and all that? You know, some people, what do they do? They write a check and... They've done their part. And then what do the other people do? They change the channel. Are we getting in? Are we being all in for Christ? Are we working for him? What a tragedy it would be to go through life and not be a blessing to anyone. And that's what Epaphroditus was. He was a blessing because he was still working for Christ. This working wasn't something very spiritual, but it was still the work of of Christ. He showed Christ's love. And Paul says, we want you to honor him. We want you to honor him within the church. But Christ gets the glory. But there's nothing wrong with the servant of Christ receiving honor for that, for his service. The real test of Christian love and character is in how a leader treats those with whom he or she is working for and who they lead. And Paul scores very high in this. Paul's encouraging the church to hold Epaphroditus in honor, but it's for God's glory that he did it. Paul is a great example and a model for leadership that he shows an affectionate concern for his disciples. Paul proves to us that a joyful life is a life of sacrifice and service. It's a balanced life, not with grumbling, but it's being obedient and following the example of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's the challenge for us today.
Will we permit the Holy Spirit to transform us, to renew our minds, to reduce a mind in us like Jesus Christ, to live each day with the joy of the Lord in us, not letting our circumstances dictate who we are and how we act, but the joy of the Lord is in us, to bring him honor and glory as we act out and we live our faith each and every day in the real world. Are we willing to go and serve others, to have a concern for other people more than ourselves? And is our focus, number one focus, on Jesus Christ, putting him first in our lives, to have a gospel-focused life? Sanctification is personal, and it's a continued work in each and every one of our lives. In Hebrews 12, too, it says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A grateful heart for what God has done for each and every one of us will keep us from grumbling and complaining because it's the joy of the Lord that's in us. In church, we have a blessed body here today. And we know that God wants to work in us and through us for his glory. And I'm so thankful for each and every person that's in here. Everyone that is serving within the church that's got personally involved with God's church. I want to thank you. But I also want to make a challenge. I want to ask you if you've not received that grace and you don't know the joy of the Lord in your heart because you've never received him and you don't have a personal relationship with him and your circumstances dictate how you live your life instead of the joy of the Lord showing you how you should live your life. I want to give you an opportunity today to receive Jesus in your heart, to receive that free gift of grace and to have the joy of the Lord in you always. So if you could just bow your heads. And if you want to receive the Lord for the first time and you want to have that joy and not let circumstances dictate who you are, just raise your hand. This is between you and God. He'll see that. You want to have the joy of the Lord in your heart. And you say, I don't want to let the circumstances rule my life. I want to follow you faithfully for all the days of my life. Just raise your hand. It's between you and God. He'll see you. I'll give you a minute. And if that's you, and you want to receive that joy of the Lord, just pray this prayer with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you for your son who came and died for us on the cross. And Father, I repent of my sins. I turn in the opposite direction. And I don't want to let my circumstances dictate who I am. I want the joy of the Lord in me. I want to have a joyful spirit. I want to follow you all the days of my life. I believe that you died for me on the cross. And I receive you into my heart today. And I give you my whole life. I want to be obedient to the calling and the work that you have in my life. Father, I love you and I thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.